like to welcome everybody here to the, uh, this is probably like number nine, I think, of the uh, Materi's uh, roundtables. The purpose of these events are basically to, to create and share knowledge with sailors and people that are thinking about trying to sail. And in particular for this one, it's about emergency medicine, emergency care um, at sea. And we're fortunate enough to have Dr. Chris Worker, um, who is an Ontario's owner, but also um, a physician. And he'll give us more of his background here in a minute. But if we could just real quickly, for those that are online that are um, Ontario's owners, if you could just do a quick introduction of the name of your boat and where you're located, that would be great. And Charles, I know that you're driving right now. Um, so Charles is is in Los Angeles right now, but his boat is in Florida and he's flying to his boat in the next couple of weeks, I believe. So um, how about you, Renee, Texas Crude? Can you hear oh. us now or not? Okay. Yes, we can. Hi, uh, Gene and Renee, Texas Crude. We are in, currently in Bonaire. Oh, you're in Bonaire. You've been there a while. Back, back to Bonaire. Okay. And for how long will you be in Bonaire? Um... Well, we'd like to stay a couple more weeks, having some immigration issues. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with that. Um, how about you. you, Alan and Elizabeth? Quick introduction. Hi, I'm Elizabeth and my husband, Alan, who got a phone call just now, but we're on Vivacia. We've just arrived in Norfolk, basically traveling up from the Bahamas via a couple of stops, and now we're going to be in Norfolk for a little while. Okay, great. Well, thanks. Welcome. Doug, you want to do a quick intro? Yeah, um, Doug and Marjorie's here somewhere on uh, Frolic. We are currently in New Bern, North Carolina. Just going to do a short haul here for uh, a shaft seal, and then we're going to get headed north for the summer, Nova Scotia, maybe Newfoundland. Oh, really? Wow. That sounds, sounds good. I've heard that the weather windows are tough right now. I've heard that from a couple people. Uh, we never pay attention to the weather unless we're trying to go somewhere. <laughs> Understood. Tara, quick introduction. You're on mute. Let me just unmute you real quick. Just do a quick introduction. I, I know where your boat is. It's in Argentina. There you go. In, in the works. Hi, everyone. Yeah. I'm Tara McLean, um, Hole 71, and uh, we're excited to start our adventures in December or somewhere around there. Okay. Thank you very much, Tara. I appreciate it. We see the gears. Scott, you want to give a quick introduction, kind of where you're located and about your Hey, boat? I'm Scott. I'm in uh, Vancouver, Washington. I don't know if Monica's on here or not, because she's probably in some other part of the house. Uh, but yeah, we're hole 73, I think. So delivery end of 2023 or maybe early 2024, somewhere in there. Pretty excited uh, about that. I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys are covering tonight. That's great. Thanks very much. Uh, Sarah, I see that you're online. You were online. Uh, a quick hello. We're here, Mark. Uh, hang on one second. We are here in southern New Hampshire in my mother's house, uh, not far from Keene, New Hampshire. Our uh, boat Sorella 4470 should be ready by uh, October, November. Sounds great. Well, thanks a lot for joining. Um, I'll go ahead and just kind of get, get things started. And uh, Chris, I'm going to hand it to you and let you jump into it and just just real quickly by the way if people have any questions throughout the event just raise your hand using the feature uh with zoom to raise your hand or put a question on the chat and i'll be happy to kind of interrupt uh chris and, and field questions as we're going through the slides so chris it's all yours 
All right. Well, uh, thanks, Mark, and uh, hi, everyone. So, you know, I kind of want to start by saying, Sarah, my Sarah, uh, uh, and I actually have learned so much through these roundtables and through the forums. Um, it's been great. So uh, we're happy to uh, be able to uh, contribute. So uh, again, a little bit about me. I'm an ER physician. I've been doing this about 30 years. I'm board certified in emergency medicine and uh, EMS systems. I actually just uh, recently uh, retired from uh, being the executive director of Mr. Transport. Again, we're a uh, medevac and ambulance uh, service for MedStar Health that uh, operates in the Mid-Atlantic region, DC and Baltimore uh, areas. Uh, and fortunately, uh, now uh, we get to go start sailing like uh, many of you. So we're excited uh, to do that. We've got Catalyst Hull 20 uh, uh, based here in the Ch Chesapeake and uh, we're going to be uh, heading out here pretty soon. So uh, with all that, uh, my uh, in-house counsel. Not doing it. <laughs> uh, I hate presenting. <laughs> said, uh, I need to do a disclaimer. Uh, and so here is the uh, perfunctory, uh, painful disclaimer uh, to start with. Um, so this is, uh, this is information uh, that's educational kind of for awareness. Um, and I uh, just kind of want to make clear, these are like general guidelines. This doesn't substitute for uh, specific, you know, professional medical advice, which is always the best when you can obtain it. So uh, seek professional medical advice uh, for a specific patient uh, given a specific situation. These are my general recommendations on how to prepare and manage certain medical emergencies and they're general guidelines, uh, but you have to take responsibility for applying these guidelines to a specific patient. How am I doing? Perfect. All right. Uh, this does not represent the opinions of MedStar Health, MedStar Washington Hospital Center, MedStar Transport, 40 Greater Sur, or Antares Catamarans. I've got no financial interest in any of my recommendations, uh, and I've tried to keep the uh, uh, images uh, tame, uh, but they might be uh, disturbing uh, to some, so I warn you uh, for that. Okay. So starting off, uh, unfortunately, I think it's appropriate that we need to start off with management uh, of gunshot wounds. So there's a lot uh, going on. There's certainly a lot in the media. And, and unfortunately, the reality is that you may be in a situation where you know, you're called upon to render assistance to uh, a victim of a gunshot wound. Um, and, and the reality is that Unfortunately, some patients with potentially survivable injuries die because no one you know, was there to stop the bleeding. Uh, and that's how, how gunshot uh, victims generally die in this fragile early uh, period. If they survive the initial insult, obviously there's some catastrophic injuries that are not salvageable, but there are many, many that are, and uh, you save them by stopping the bleeding. So lots and lots of folks have been through like CPR training, other types of rescue training. And we've traditionally always taught the ABCs of resuscitation, airway, breathing, circulation. For trauma and gunshot wounds, it's actually CAB, circulation first, it stopped the bleeding. 
and it's actually quite simple to do. You know how to do it. You've been taught this, uh, you know, actually uh, probably many times by our mothers and stuff, direct pressure on the wound. So you get something soft that will apply the pressure over the wound. You can, it can be a shirt, it can be a scarf, it can be anything that you can compress directly onto the wound and you hold the pressure there and you hold the pressure for a good long time. I mean, like 20 minutes and hold it tight. Don't give it up, don't peek, don't like hold it for five minutes and lift it up to sneak under the dressing to see if it's still bleeding. Just hold the pressure for a good long time. Ideally, in that, in that time period, you've got some professional help coming to help you, uh, but you may not, all right? But the first step is hold that uh, direct pressure. If that professional care is uh, delayed, just a couple things uh, to remember here. Uh, uh, first of all, don't worry about getting the bullet out. Uh, lots and lots of uh, folks, you know, we see on TV and in the movies that everyone concentrates on getting the bullet out. We actually rarely take bullets out. It takes, it does more damage getting, removing the bullet than just leaving it in place. And so we usually just uh, leave it in. If you're in a situation where it's really gonna be delayed and you have to do initial wound management, what you do wanna get out is any foreign bodies. And uh, typically, unfortunately, uh, that's typically pieces of clothing, fabric, threads, if you see that coming out of room, get rid of all that stuff. Get rid of all the foreign uh, material out of there. Even if it gets things bleeding again, you want to get all that foreign material out of there. And if it starts bleeding again, just hold, uh, hold the uh, pressure on there. And then finally, we leave these wounds open. Just leave it open to drain. Once the bleeding stops, you don't want to even contemplate closing these things up. These are dirty wounds, and you don't want to you know, close up all the uh, debris and bacteria in there. So you just leave it open. Now, the other thing that you can use for you know, applying direct uh, pressure is a tourniquet. And there's different ways to do this. And tourniquets are easy to use. Lots of us have been trained through various uh, uh, um, avenues on how to use tourniquets. There's these fancy ones that are pre-made. This is a cat tourniquet. This is a fairly common one. This is the one that we use in MedStar in the trauma unit. This is what DC EMS uh, carries. Many EMS folks do it. So it's a nice fancy one. And you put this thing on over, uh, you put the bandage, you put the dressing over the wound and then strap the tourniquet right over the wound. A lot of uh, earlier training was like apply the tourniquet proximal or maybe like on a pressure point, like, you know, somewhere where the artery is exposed. You actually want it right on the wound, right on the hole, holding uh, the pressure in there. And your real goal there is to stop the arterial bleeding, the bright red bleeding. That's the bleeding that's going to kill somebody in a matter of minutes uh, with the bleeding out. So if you can stop that bright red bleeding, that's your primary goal. And the heavy venous bleeding, that's the kind of the dark red burgundy uh, blood there. But don't worry about trying to stop all bleeding. It's going to have some oozing there and the dressing and stuff like that, which is normal. And uh, there's uh, an air where people will keep cinching down tighter and tighter trying to stop all bleeding. And there's like little back bleeding and stuff that's going on there. You're probably not gonna stop that. So don't worry about that minor bleeding. Um, and then the other thing that's important if you do use a tourniquet is to write the time that you apply it. So 
obviously when you put a tourniquet on an extremity, it cuts off the, uh, the blood to the, you know, the rest of the extremity and you don't want to do that for too long. So we need to know when it went on and when to take it down. Kind of a hard limit is you want to take that, uh, that tourniquet off, even if it's just for a, a period where you can allow perfusion no later than 60 minutes, but it's really probably best to take it down after like uh, 20, uh, 20 or 30 minutes. So there's these fancy tourniquets, but again, super easy to improvise a tourniquet. You really don't need to go out and buy anything like this to keep on your boat or in your car and stuff like that. Easy to, you know, uh, uh, to improvise a tourniquet. You want to use something that's wide, that's going to uh, distribute the force over an area. You don't want to use like a rope, a line, a sheet, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be too concentrated. So use fabric, belts, webbing straps are great, scarves, even like a necktie, things like that make great tourniquets. You want to start by wadding up some cloth that's going to, again, to go right under the wound. You're going to wrap the tourniquet uh, around that wound. Uh, and then you use uh, uh, something that you can use, and they call it a windlass on a tourniquet. Great term. Use a windlass uh, uh, to tighten up the tourniquet. And that windlass can be a wooden spoon, a pen, uh, a, a screwdriver, just something that's solid that you can tighten that, uh, that tourniquet uh, up. And again, write down the uh, time that you're going to use this. Super easy. So um, let me pause there. We just covered a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, questions, comments? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Renee. You need to, you're on mute. Renee, you're on mute. Uh, it's okay. Hey, Renee, you're on mute. There you go. Yeah. Oh, do you recommend using something like a blood clotting agent to pour into the wound? If you have it, uh, it's great. They're, they're less effective. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of clotting things. There's, there's um, material like quick clot that you can get, and this is available uh, over the counter. It's essentially kitty litter uh, that uh, works to activate the clotting agents and stuff. They work very well on superficial wounds that aren't deep and where you can apply this action and you have a lot of little bleeding vessels and bleeding tissue. That's when it really works well. Deep penetrating wounds like a gunshot wound, a stab wound, it's not going to get down to the source of that deep uh, bleeding. Uh, but like if you have somebody with you know, like terrible abrasions, road rash, they've gone, you know, it's a bicycle uh, accident, uh, you know, a motorcycle accident, and they've got a deep abrasion and you've got like all this diffuse uh, oozing, then things like quick clot, clotting agents and stuff actually can work very well to kind of stabilize that and keep that down. Most of the time, again, it's just direct pressure on those wounds. Hey, Chris, I just received a question from Doug. He said that they have some clotting packs on board. When do you recommend using clotting packs? Clotting packs. So if you're gonna use them, use them right away. But this is one of those judgment calls, like if it's a fresh wound with brisk bleeding, 
the clotting agent's not going to help in that setting. So, you know, uh, so that's direct pressure. Like, you know, it's, it's the leak in the boat. You know, if it's a fountain of water, you know, that's coming into the boat, you want to get control of that fast, right? If it's slow, you got time to do some of these other things. Um, if you're going to use it, you want to use it earlier, but don't delay that direct pressure. So, you know, if to, to kind of summarize that big bad way and just get direct pressure on it, don't hold up if it's big bad bleeding. Don't do the peak to get some quick clock on it. It's like it's not that valuable. You got a slow bleed uh, there, and you got time. Yeah, sticking it on there, putting it, uh, the dressing over it, holding pressure there can help. Perfect. All right. Uh, so uh, similarly, stab wounds. Uh, uh, no surprises here. Uh, and I'm talking about stab wounds and impalings. The first day, the first management here is direct pressure, control the bleeding. And again, if it's on an extremity, consider using the tourniquet. Let me make another comment about tourniquet. Most of the time, tourniquets uh, aren't needed and really don't benefit unless you need your hands. So if you're in a situation where you do have someone with uh, multiple trauma, they have a head injury, there's other stuff that you need to get to, and it's just you, you don't have someone to hold the direct pressure on that wound, then a tourniquet's great to hold that pressure for you so you can go do other things, either with that same patient or you know, if it's a mass casualty and it's multiple victims uh, and you need to move to somebody else, get a tourniquet on. But other than that, most of the time you, you don't need a tourniquet. So I don't want to overemphasize the, 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 the tourniquet thing. But then coming back to the stab wounds again, hold pressure there. Uh, and and um, uh, the, uh, the other piece I was just thinking about that I forgot to say about uh, gunshot wounds and stab wounds, all penetrating trauma is don't assume that if you don't see a lot of blood coming out of the wound, that there's not a lot of internal bleeding. Assume that there's a lot of bleeding. You know, you just make that assumption. Sometimes it's visible and you see it coming out of the wound. That's impressive. It'll get your attention. That's easy to identify and diagnose. But if you see a wound, gunshot wound, deep stab wounds, and you don't see a lot of bleeding, assume there's still bleeding on the inside that you can't see. So hold that direct pressure. It's a really, really, really important. Um, and then the other thing with uh, penetrations and stab wounds or impalings and stuff like that is obviously the, the skin wound can be uh, deceiving. Uh, and the ultimate example of that is an ice pick. Obviously, someone who's you know either uh, assaulted with an ice pick or accidentally impaled with an ice pick, it leaves a tiny hole. But an eight-inch uh, ice pick can do serious, serious damage if it's put put into the hilt. So don't be deceived by that uh, superficial wound. And it's one of the reasons you actually want to pay attention. Uh, if you didn't see the instrument to find out what the instrument is, because if it is something like an ice pick, you know, you have potentially a very, very serious injury, despite what might be a tiny hole. But conversely, if you have someone who's been sliced with, uh, you know, a box cut or something that, like that, that only has, a, you know, a half inch uh, blade, it may be a very long slice that's impressive. 
but it can't go deep. And so you're just dealing with that superficial uh, uh, injury there. And we're gonna get into this with lacerations here, but again, if delay is cared for this stuff, don't worry about closing these wounds. Big take home message uh, from this evening is wounds, your body is amazing at healing and, and healing itself. Uh, and it will, it, it does a fantastic job of closing and healing wounds. They don't need to be closed. So, you know, we always see in the movies and the TV, you know, folks are making all these efforts to immediately, you know, sew themselves up or sew their buddies up. Not necessary. If you know how to do it, you have the equipment to do it. And really, if you're trained to do it, that's fine. But don't worry about leaving wounds open. Your body will heal. And it's always... Um, always uh, better to, uh, to leave those wounds open. Going back to stab wounds uh, and in these impalings, if unfortunately the situation is that the uh, instrument, the object is still in them, don't take it out, just leave it in them. Assume that that instrument, that knife, that whatever, and it you know, might be a screwdriver, whatever is, plugging the hole in the artery, plugging the hole in the blood vessel, right? And if you take that thing out, you're gonna, you could have catastrophic bleeding there. Best to leave it in. There's no urgency here. Like once it goes in, like that's the bad part. There's, there's no urgency to take this thing out. So if you're in a situation where that's, uh, that's in, leave it in. Try to stabilize it. So if it's flopping around, you don't want that thing flopping around and causing more damage. So bolster it, uh, you know, with cloth, bolster it with tape so it's not moving around. But don't be worried about getting it out right away. Hopefully you can get to professional help where this can be uh, uh, removed in a very controlled in environment. And if in a worst case scenario, you're offshore uh, and you're, you know, a long ways from uh, getting professional help, at least have someone on the SATCOM, on the radio, who can, who can walk you through this thing, because um, it could get really exciting when you take that thing out. So again, let me pause there for questions and uh, comments. Someone I just asked. want to comment that like half the people on the video are eating. That's impressive. <laughs> Sail, you, gotta, you gotta love sailors. You just you gotta love sailors. They do gross well. <laughs> yeah. Someone asked, uh, what are we looking at in, in the photo? That's someone I guess it was a stab wound of some sort, right? That was just kind of yes. So that was from a trauma article of um uh uh that was a knife. Uh and if you want to ask, well, what do we see most uh, commonly? It's it's knives that get left in, uh, and they're uh, either they either get left in because they get stuck, uh, like they've someone stabbed someone. You know, apologies to those eating, but uh, yeah, they get stabbed and it's it gets jammed into a bone and. Could, those can be hard to get out, surprisingly hard to get out. Uh, one of the, you asked Mark earlier about like some of my uh, good war stories. Uh, and I look forward to many days and, and nights out there of trading stories. But one of the more memorable ones was um, having a guy uh, come in with a knife in the middle of his chest, 
stuck in, you know, right there. He's, al he's alive. He's awake. He's talking again, because the knife's plugging the hole, you know, but he's got a big, like honey knife stuck in the middle of his chest, but it's sitting there with his heartbeat pulsating back and forth. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, Oh, Oh, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a problem. Uh, he ended up doing fine. He was taken to the operator room with the cardiac surgeon uh, and uh, where they opened him up. And again, very carefully from the inside, like watching to see where this thing was. Um, and it, it had gone into his heart. Uh, it was in his right ventricle and it was, uh, it, it was in his heart, but it plugged the hole. And so they were able to uh, remove this in a very controlled fashion, and then he did fine. Uh, okay. So um, training. Uh, you know, many of you actually may have already uh, uh, had some of this training or have seen it. Uh, but there's lots of campaigns that are going on now because, unfortunately, you know, we've recognized that especially in, in some of these very sad recent mass casualty uh, shootings that there were folks that, that could have survived had they received, you know, initial immediate, you know, trauma first aid. And so the uh, American College of Surgeons has the Stop Bleeding Program, American Red Cross uh, First Aid for Severe Bleeding. And it's all oriented on these things that we're talking about. So there is more training out there to uh, that's uh, there. And, Actually, many of our kids are getting this actually in the schools now, uh, which is a sad comment, but I think is, is necessary. Lacerations uh, or along uh, the same vein. Uh, it's, you know, you get, uh, 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 it's control the bleeding, you know, get the, you get just a whole pressure on there. And again, remembering lacerations, cuts don't have to be closed. It's always better, it's always safer to leave the wound open because the, the real danger isn't that you're going to sew up the wound wrong. The danger is you're going to sew up an infection that you've got debris and bacteria that's inside there. And now instead of your body, which, uh, you know, if the wound was left open, it can drain out, it can push all that debris out uh, and it can heal uh, safely you've trapped this bacteria uh, inside. Uh, and this can lead to severe infection, sepsis, death, and that's the real danger. So uh, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, you know, sewing a wound closed is easy. It actually is, is easy. The important part isn't the sewing, it's the cleaning the wound out to make sure that it's safe to close. So you do want to you clean these wounds out, but again, unless you've really been trained on how to make sure that you can, you've cleaned the wound adequately to close it, my advice is don't worry about closing it unless you know, you've been trained for it or you've got someone that's kind of helping you through. What you do want to do is clean it. Much more important than closing up. Clean the wound. You don't need sterile water. You know, this is, uh, you want clean water, uh, we know that we use tap water to clean out uh, our wounds because it's just as safe and as effective as using sterile water. Uh, you don't need to use betadine and you actually don't want to use hydrogen peroxide. Peroxide is a great sanitizing uh, agent, 
but it's harmful to tissue and you'll actually inhibit healing. So you yep. really don't want to put that into a wound unless you really want to sanitize it, but you're, 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 you're cleaning it, uh, but uh, you're actually impeding the, the healing uh, part. Uh, so get the, get the dirt out, get the debris out, clean it, and then leave it open and uh, just a, a clean dressing again. This does not need to be a sterile dressing. You know, lots of us worry about getting sterile dressings and stuff like that. That one's not sterile. Putting a sterile dressing on it is not going to make it sterile. I see a hand up. Hi, this is Charles. Um, a question. Uh, I think I think for some of us who are thinking about, you know, far and remote locations. Um, there can you when you address this this clearly be something that don't close it up because you can get somewhere uh you can get to baltimore or you can get to annapolis and someone can who knows how to close it up can properly do it but what happens if your 48 hour motor from anywhere that you could or 24 48 72 something like that you're somewhere in fiji and no one's going to help you because you're so far remote when would you close it or would you just leave it open? You just leave it open. You just, you just leave that open. So you see that wound that we're seeing this picture of, we got a laceration on this finger. Um, and like hands are tough because they're notorious for getting infection. The perfusion there is not so great. And so that wound actually has uh, a significant risk of infection if you don't clean it out appropriately and that's hard it's actually harder to do uh on the cleaning so uh you know my advice if you if if uh, you had you were dealing with this someplace remote control the bleeding get the bleeding to stop then you're going to open that wound up i mean open it up yes it's going to hurt but you're going to open it up and you're going to wash it out by running like like forceful water Ideally, uh, and I was trying to think about uh, you know, how we could do this best with what we have available on a boat. So the standard, like the, the standard for irrigating a wound is irrigation at about eight PSI. Uh, if you had a 30 cc syringe and a, like a 18 or a 20 gauge needle or angiocath, that's like filling that syringe and using pretty much all your hand pressure to spray a jet of water again, just clean tap water, uh, drinking water into that wound and wash it out, wash it out, wash it out. Then you're gonna close the skin up, approximate it as close as you can. Don't sew it and, and wrap it up. And then if you have something like that, then you wanna splint it so you're not pulling the, the wound apart so it can heal up. That, that wound will heal up fine. And in a worst case, if you if you have like scar tissue that causes like a contraction that makes it hard to close it, a, a plastic surgeon can fix that later. That's much safer than saying, oh gosh, I think I'm going to close this thing, you know, and I've got some fishing line and all this stuff, and I'm going to close it up. And you know, 24, 48 hours later, you got that hand that's blowing up from a cellulitis, uh, you know, that's going to the arm, you're, you're, you're putting, you're putting the, 
not just the hand and the extremity at risk, you're putting the patient at risk. So it's like, don't go there. And I would say that's even more so like in the, in the tropics because, yeah. uh, you know, you've got, you know, you all have done more tropical uh, travels than I have, but you know what infections are like uh, in a tropical environment. They're, they're hard to deal with. You know, warm, moist environments promote bacterial growth. So again, leave these things open. Well, that, that's good to hear what you're saying because I, I'm bringing this up because I was actually on an offshore cruise in the South Pacific and one of our co-captains, we were on a training uh, experience, uh, got a fish hook stuck in her foot as she was bringing the fish aboard. And um, we were 48 hours away from any reasonable help. And uh, they cleaned it. They got the staple gun out and stapled it. Exactly, because what happened is her foot blew up. I mean, it was huge. We had to actually go into port two days earlier because they thought it was okay. So this is why, I mean, this looks a lot like what she had in her, in her ankle, basically. So, Wow. Yeah, I know, right? We all and, and it's reinforced so much that we think we get the sense that wounds have to be closed, and the reality is they really don't. Uh, and so that's that. Yes, that's a big take-home message: clean the wound, clean it well. Always best to leave things uh, open. And how often do you change the dressing? So, a good, good, good question. Counselor, uh, 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 I'm just curious. <laughs> so, you know, generally we say, um, you know, 24 hours, but uh, uh, it's really dependent on how wet the dressing's getting. So uh, if you get in a situation and you have a wound and it may fester some, right? Uh, if it's open, but that's okay. The body can deal with that. If it starts to ooze a lot, then you want to change the dressing basically when the dressing's getting wet. All right, so that nasty uh, wet dressing, again, promotes bacterial growth. So that's not helping, so you get rid of that. If, if it's a dry dressing that's on there, you can go more than 24 hours, but typically we're, we're telling folks, just leave it on, you know, change it every 24 hours and check it. Good question. So, hey, Chris, I've got a question and a comment. Um, somebody sent a question, Doug did, that asked, would it be beneficial to at least use, you know, a butterfly bandage or a steri strip to kind of at least somewhat close that wound, or is that closing the wound and you really shouldn't do that, even if it's not suturing it, but using a, a steri strip or something? I, I think that's totally reasonable to do that. Uh, as okay. long as your goal is, I'm not trying to close the wound. Uh, okay. You want to intentionally leave a gap. Right? Okay. So breathe. Yeah. So it can breathe, so it can drain. So you can close wounds with steri strips, tape, duct tape, uh, super glue, uh, you know, these things. But again, if you seal the wound, if you close it in, just assume you're, you're, you're trapping the bacteria on the inside. So on a wound like this with the finger where you can see like, well, it's kind of gaping a little bit and you say, well, you know what? I think I can help this by approximating it, but I'm gonna leave, you know, a two, three millimeter minimum gap so it can drain. 
Don't get yeah. the skin so close because the skin's actually it heals together amazingly quick. You know, you think about like your little razor cuts that you get. It's kind of amazing. They bleed like a stink. You stick them together. And like an hour later, they're like stuck together. That's your yeah. body healing. So yeah. that's what you want to prevent. Yeah. So, so Chris, I'll add one more thing that just simply an observation that I learned the hard way. Um, and that's hydrogen peroxide. So I had always thought, and, and I had a very big cut on me from a piece of coral bleeding it was a very big gash and i was worried of course because in the tropics getting some sort of bad infection so i use hydrogen peroxide to clean it i use it every single day and that darn thing never healed until i started to realize that it looked like it was killing the actual cells it was turning white and i said you know what maybe i better stop using and once i stopped using it, it healed right up so i i i was overusing hydrogen peroxide thinking it was the right thing to do to keep it sterile i was worried about getting an infection we're in the middle of nowhere the reality was it never healed until i stopped using it yeah, the, Mark, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, peroxide is a phenomenal disinfectant. It kills everything, uh, but it also kills your tissue. So yeah, yeah. All right. Um, good. All right, let's go. Let's deal with some fractures. Let's deal with uh, some broken bones, uh, starting with the big ones. Uh, so the problem with the big bones, we're talking about the thigh bone, the femur, uh, the tibia, and the uh, lower leg. Big bones, and, and they can cause big bleeding. These, these, are, these are true emergencies. Um, uh, they're obviously very painful, but they're, they're a real problem not just because the bone's broken, but you got to make this assumption that uh, you can have some, some terrible bleeding uh, that's uh, going on. Obviously, you know, again, if you have access to, you know, medical support, you know, this is a true medical emergency, you want to get it. But what do you do when you're offshore? Someone's fallen, whatever, and they've got a, uh, they've got a broken leg um, that you need to, to deal with. You need to reduce it. Uh, you don't want to just leave it or splint it in that abnormal position uh, because in that abnormal position, uh, it may be cutting off blood flow. It may be uh, hurting a nerve, pinching a nerve. Uh, uh, and it may just be like poking into uh, other tissue. Uh, and so you need to uh, reduce this. So uh, let's see if I can do this. Um, yeah, so the little x-ray down here, here's the femur, this is the thigh bone. Uh, this is the knee uh, there with that little gap going through the knee and this is the, the front view and this is the side view. So here's a distal femur fracture. And this piece is supposed to go up there. Uh, and you can see that it's out of position it's shortened, it's overriding. The two pieces are overriding because the muscles naturally contract and pull the pieces together. So when you're having to reduce uh, a bone, pretty much any bone, but especially these big bones, you got to pull it. And you got to pull down um, uh, to lengthen it and get it out into, into position the patient will actually get some relief when you start to pull down on it. You think it's gonna be like terrible, but if you're pulling out, you're distracting this injury, uh, they're, they're actually gonna get uh, some relief. Uh, uh, this poor uh, patient in the picture up here may be what you'll see on the outside. Uh, you know, they're complaining about pain. They have a funny looking leg. 
Uh, and was, if you pay attention, you'll see that one leg is shorter than the other. An indication that you know it's not just broken, but the bones are overriding here. And then typically on the legs, uh, the lower portion rotates to the outside, externally rotates here. And so if you're if you have to deal with this, because you know you're again you're offshore, you grab uh, you grab them by the ankle here, uh, two hands, the ankle, one in the back, one in the front, and you pull down and you straighten it and you pull it out the length, you straighten wow. it out uh, and they'll actually get some relief from this. But the other thing that you have to do is not just pay attention to the angulation, like no, you get getting rid of the funny bend in the bone, pay attention to the rotation. So when I talk about the rotation, the foot uh, is rotated to the outside. So you need to pull it out, strengthen it and then rotate it up so basically the feet point in the same direction all right now if you're dealing uh, uh with like again a big uh, and and like femurs are tough uh because they're big bones they're 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 very painful when this happens uh they can be life-threatening and again what do you do if you're out shore, offshore and you you have to do this yourself uh, you want to split this. So now that it's not moving around, because again, if it's moving, those pieces that you can see down here, you can just imagine are moving around, they're causing more damage. So you want to split this thing so it's not moving around. It's not just to relieve pain, it's to prevent that damage. And so for femurs, you can do this thing of buddy taping. I'm going to get into buddy taping toes that I think most of us uh, know how to do, but you can buddy tape your legs also. And you do that by putting some towels or a blanket between the legs. That's just to help with the chafing and stuff there. And then bind the legs together. You're, you're basically supporting the bad leg with the good leg. You're also going to need to do this because if you are in a situation where maybe this has happened and you're offshore, but you're fortunate enough that you're within helicopter range and you can get medevaced, or you're going to even do you know uh, a ship medevac, they're probably going to you have to put the person into a into a basket into a stokes and, and some type of stretcher and you need to get them prepared to be able to tolerate that move so you need to splint this uh, uh splint those legs um let me let me pause there for this one a raised hand charles uh can you uh, reset that leg without pain meds i mean or in other words, should we be carrying some kind of pain meds? I mean, that just, that looks traumatic. I mean, if you're in the emergency room, they're going to give you something for that. Yep. Right. Yep. Come, come crew on my boat. I, I've got morphine on board. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and will you know when it's back in place, when you've actually pulled on the ankle, rotated, will it feel that it's lined up properly if it's just one break? Probably not. Probably okay. not. Yeah. Uh, what you might feel, and sorry for anyone who's uh, enjoying dessert at this point, uh, you might feel some crunching. Uh, you'll feel that movement, but you're not going to uh, get like some sort of satisfying feedback that, oh, it's back in position. 
you do get that uh, with dislocated joints. Um, and, you know, like when you're working with a dislocated joint, you get a very satisfying, you know, thunk that it goes when it goes back into position. So you're and, speaking like a shoulder, right? You're, a shoulder, a knee, an elbow. Those okay, are, that's uh, what I was thinking about. All right. Yeah. But the bones, yeah, you know, typically uh, you, you're going to, you're not going to get that sort of feedback on it. But what you but see, it, like the legs will be the same. You'll see that things will look like they're in place. Your goal is to make the bad side look like the good side. And so if, if you've done that, then splint it in that position, and that's about the best you can get. And then just to ask that quick question about the meds, if you would you do this without morphine or any meds? Would that be preferable than actually uh, waiting till you had proper meds for as far as pain relief? So we're, we're going to get into like medications okay. and stuff, uh, but this is something. Again, let's take the scenario. You're 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 offshore. You know, uh, care is going to be delayed. Um, you know, my recommendation is save all your leftovers. So you know, uh, save your leftovers. Uh, especially pain medicine is is good long after its expiration. So uh, I, I keep all my leftovers there and then you can use those. I mean, obviously, you know, unless you're um, in a special situation, all you're gonna have is an oral medication. Uh, but if you have uh, some leftover, you know, hydrocodone, oxycodone, absolutely, you know, get that on board. The patient's gonna be uh, in pain. And so get that on board if you have it available. But if you don't, I'm going to say, sorry, Charles, hang on. Here we go. All right. That's what I want to know. So the, the, fixing it is better than this pain that they're going to go through in the process. And you also said they might have some relief, which is, we'll just remind them that you're going to feel a little better after we do this. And, and again, you have to assume, especially on a, on a deform, I'm going to jump over to this arm. Here's, a, here's an arm deformity here of a humerus. You know, obvious uh, what we call angulation, the bend that's in there. But it's not just that he's got a funny looking arm. That down here in this uh, x ray, those bone fragments are compressing uh, arteries, nerves. And if you don't relieve that pressure, that can lead to permanent severe damage. If it's, you know, you can have a permanent nerve injury if you don't relieve that uh, pressure on the nerve. Um, and you can lead to catastrophic vascular injuries if you don't relieve that. So it, you, the real point of reducing these is to um, relieve the internal damage. And this can't wait. And again, this is the point, you know, if you're near shore, uh, and you can get help and you see, have someone like with an arm like this, you splint it in position, tape it up, you know, whatever, you know, so it's not moving around like that and, and, and don't worry about it and let, let, you know, a professional deal with it. If you're offshore and you know, this is going to be even hours, you got to do this. You, you, you have to take action on this, you know, for sake of, of saving that limb. Uh, and how do you do that? You take that arm. I would grab this uh, this arm. You know, I'd have probably one hand uh, behind the elbow, 
I'd have the other hand kind of grabbing the forearm uh, of the hand, and I'm going to pull down away from the shoulder. So I'm going to lengthen it. I'm going to pull these things apart. And as I pull it apart, it's going to naturally straighten. And once I have that in position, now I can splint them. Uh, and, you know, initially I'm just going to lay it up against the chest. The chest actually makes a nice form. Our arms are kind of designed to go around our chest. So you can use the chest to, to splint uh, itself. And then you come up with a splint. We're, again, we're talking about splinting here. Um, uh, splints, you have stuff on board. It can, you know, cardboard makes great splints until it gets wet. Uh, so keep it dry. But dry cardboard, makes a great splint. Magazines make great splints. I mean, you'll find stuff to do this. Uh, what do you want to do? You want to pad underneath it. If you're wrapping for padding, make sure that it's really loose because you, you need to anticipate things are going to swell up. You got to give it room to swell up. So loose padding and put the splint on. And the same thing with uh, taping, whether you're using duct tape, electrical tape, uh, um, you know, if you have ACE wraps, elastic bandages, something like that, uh, not too tight. It's got to be tight enough to support, uh, you know, the splint, but not, but, but no more because it's going to swell up. And what you want to monitor for is numbness and tingling uh, distal on the far side of that injury. So you have someone with a broken arm, uh, you've reduced it, you've put them in a splint, and an hour later, they say, yeah, my hand's going to sleep. And especially if it wasn't asleep before, your splint's too tight. You're cutting off the circulation. You need to loosen that up, so pay attention to that. Um, and uh, you've heard this a, a million times, but it's actually quite impressive how effective ice and elevation is for dealing with swelling. So don't forget ice and elevation. It really makes a dramatic uh, difference in, in, in swelling. Hey, hey Chris, uh, uh, Chris yeah. a quick question here from Joshua. He said in the wilderness first responder training, they're taught to reduce many fractures, but explicitly told to leave femurs alone, even if it's going to be a couple of days, too easy to cause catastrophic bleeding. Do you agree or disagree? I disagree. If you're out on a boat there, and uh, uh, again, if you have uh, uh, like a femur fracture there, and it's out of position, and it's compromising these, you know, especially in your leg, you got big nerves, uh, and big blood vessels. Um, you let that go for a couple of days, it that the, the lower leg is gone. It, it, you're going to have what's called an ischemic injury there, nerve injury. Uh, and so I, 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 I disagree. Like we're talking about things that can't wait. Again, like, like all these things, always best to have, you know, professional, you know, advice and help and stuff like that. And the good thing is in, in, in this age, you know, you can get help on the line, right? And, and it can walk you through this stuff here. But I think it is wrong to leave a big bone uh, in a bad position uh, for a long period of time. You're, you're, you're really risking something. Are you 
Are you risking doing damage in the movement? Yes, but I think that's less than the risk of leaving it as is. Thanks, got it. Five minutes left. Oh my goodness, okay, we're having yeah. too much fun. Yeah, it's okay, uh, we, can, we can keep going, but yeah, we, we won't stop, but we'll keep picking up maybe. Okay, we can, we can speed on, uh, speed up here a little bit. Uh, uh, sorry for some nasty pictures here, but yeah, these are things that you might see again. And we're talking, we're talking about again, broken bones. We're talking about these ones that are closed. Going back to the wound management is broken bones and an open wound is a big problem. Uh, and there's a really uh, a, a high risk now of a very serious chronic infection, long-term infection, if these wounds aren't appropriately managed. These really need to be taken to an operating room where the patient's under a, a general anesthetic and they're opened up and they're cleaned really vigorously from the inside out. So I'm pointing this out because if you see the big obvious ones where the bones look like you know that like like this poor uh, one where they're sticking out, that's obvious. Like you you know you got a big horrible problem here. But small wounds like that lower one, small wounds associated with a broken bone are just as serious. And so I want to stress that that don't you know because sometimes we get cavalier with management closed uh, uh, fractures. Don't get cavalier with uh, an open fracture. You see a wound associated with a broken bone, you really have a medical emergency. You need to make you know, best efforts to try to get that victim to um, uh, professional help where that can be managed. That, that needs to be washed out. They need IV antibiotics. Big, 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 big problem. If you can't do that, what do you do? You do your best job of washing these things out and you clean it out and you wash these wounds out aggressively before you reduce them. So you may, in a, in a horrible situation, like you might have to deal with that wound at the top. If you're offshore, something catastrophic's happened, you've got a nasty open fracture there. Again, you don't have uh, uh, you know, any, any support here. You need to wash that vigorously before you reduce it because otherwise you're dragging in all this bacteria and nastiness into the wound, it's going to cause big problems. So now you wash it out, get just clean drinking water will work fine using that vigorously. You're going to reduce it and then you're going to leave everything open. But the big take home thing is not, you know, that you're, you're likely to see one of these catastrophic injuries, but you might see one of these little ones where it's like, oh, here's a, you know, a broken arm or a broken leg but there's this little cut that's associated with it. That's a red flag of that's an open fracture and that's a big problem. Questions on that? Chris, I had a quick question just to follow up. Um, I think for people that have been trained in, in trauma and uh, outside uh, immediate medical attention, um, if, the femur were broken and associated with uh, an artery. I think that's what he was asking about. Like, how do we, which, which would you still go with the same answer? No, we need to address the, the femur and straighten the leg or cause, cause I think like, I'm still wondering as a nurse, like which one would I do? <laughs> so as a nurse, right. So, uh, so here we'll take it up to the next level, uh, right. And you have a, uh, you have someone with a broken femur there. 
evaluate their neurovascular status of their foot, right? And so if you they've got good pulses there and their sensations intact, it's like perfusion's not compromised. That that person could wait, right? Right. Yes. The flip side of that is you don't feel any pulses down there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's hard on these because a lot of times they have some degree of a little know, mild pulse. Yeah, right. But if you go there and you go like, you know, there's no pulse in this foot. It's turning black. <laughs> right. You, you, you've got, right, you got an hour or two to reduce that and restore perfusion. And if you wait a day or two, you know, that, that, that distal extremity is gone, it's dead. Uh -huh. So that's where you may be forced into a situation of having to do things you otherwise might not wanna do. And that's really kind of what we're talking about here, right? Is like, I'm, I'm talking about situations where you're in a situation where you need to do something, uh, you know, to help somebody, you know, you don't wanna be in that situation, but you may be called on that. And if that's the case, so again, take that evaluation. If you, uh, um, you know, so back to the femur fracture, do a neurovascular attack, take a look at that, say, nope, it's good like this, then splint it in position, right? You okay. still want to splint it because you don't want those, those pieces, you know, moving around and causing more damage, but you could splint in position. You have evidence of uh, that, you know, there's neurovascular compromise, you got to reduce it. Yep. And, okay. and, it, and it's actually much easier than you think. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna jump over uh, broken toes because uh, I think probably everyone's dealt with uh, broken toes on their boats and knows how to body tape. They can come back around to that if you have them. They're super, super common, right? Uh, yeah. But if you, if you don't know how to body tape, you should learn. Does anyone anyone have any questions on that? Maybe before I jump over it, like like that's a that's a pretty common one. Yeah. Fish hooks. We talked about that before. That's pretty common, right? Uh, and I've seen like these horrible home remedies for like removing fish hooks, like like snatching strings and stuff like that. Like like <laughs> it's just like it's just horrible ideas you know there's just there's one simple way to deal with a fish hook usually right the the fish hook gets in uh the barbs under the skin you can't back it out and the, and if you haven't done this before get some pliers drive it out through the skin cut the barb off and it'll slide back out now to minimize the infection sanitize now this may be a time where i pull out the uh, hydrogen peroxide Right, like I want to, I want to sterilize that the skin, the hook, and everything. This I would use hydrogen peroxide here, alcohol, clean it off, uh, then drive the hook through. Uh, if you're dealing with a kid and they're freaked out uh, about the pain, you can use some ice, uh, you know, to help uh, numb a little bit. But then snap that thing through, cut it off, back it out, clean it and sure as heck leave it open do not think about like yeah stapling a, a fish hook is just a really bad idea uh questions on that um 
couple quick things. How are we doing, Mark? Should we uh, wrap this up? Uh, no, You're I mute, Mark. Yeah, I was on mute. Yeah, sorry. I I would just keep going because it, this is good stuff, and we'll get through. Just kind of maybe we'll just kind of click through a little quicker, and just kind of keep moving through and ask for questions and kind of go. We're uh, we're on the home stretch here, so uh, I'll go through these pretty quick here. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, many of us are uh, older uh, sailors and sailing with uh, older sailors, and so we have to deal with uh, episodes of chest pain. Chest pain's tough. It's hard to, you know, without the equipment of EKG machines and blood tests to really figure out and diagnose what that is. So if you're dealing with someone offshore with chest pain, just assume the worst. Assume that they're having a heart attack. And the two things that you can do for them that's really, really important is first, make them rest, right? The problem with the heart attack is the, um, the heart's not getting enough uh, blood flow, enough oxygen to that muscle. Uh, and the harder you make that heart work, the worse it's going to be. So you want to rest. You want that person is absolutely down. Rest. Don't let them get around, walk around, do anything like that. Minimum, you want to minimize the work, make them rest. And as long as they're not allergic to aspirin, aspirin is amazingly effective all by itself in a heart attack. I mean, there are some amazing studies to show the effectiveness of an aspirin. So give them aspirin. It only takes, it actually only takes 80 milligram one children's aspirin. Give an adult aspirin uh, uh, and you can do an awful lot of good uh, uh, dealing with an MI uh, heart attack um, with aspirin. So carry aspirin uh, on board. And then they need an aspirin every 24 hours until they get uh, handed off for uh, definitive care. Quick questions on chest pain? Strokes, again, um, you know, they, they, they happen. We need to kind of anticipate them, uh, you know, uh, looking to identify strokes so fast as they kind of, the, Best acronym, uh, um, acronym for it, uh, looking for facial asymmetry, unilateral weakness, one side being uh, weak, garbled speech, so the fast there. And it's the same sort of thing here. Uh, it's uh, resting that patient, keeping them down. This is a time when you actually want their head down, not up. And that's just to help with the perfusion through the brain. Uh, there, so they're down flat, they're quiet. And if they're having trouble with drooling, uh, uh, having trouble with like really garbled speech, uh, then yeah, be very careful about giving them anything by mouth. That can be a real challenge if you're offshore and stuff and they need hydration, but you need to be very careful and just be mindful uh, of that. Seizures, uh, another um, actually fairly common uh, thing that folks uh, you know, frequently encounter and have to deal with folks that suffer from seizures. Uh, and a lot of seizures are alcohol related. And that's why, you know, probably more than a few of us have seen seizures around the uh, marina. Uh, how do you deal with the seizure? If you recognize that someone's starting to have those first signs of having a seizure and they're standing up, first thing to do is help them lie down. You know, they're gonna fall down, help them down, help them down to the ground. 
And the big things are okay, don't set timer enough. for six minutes. Six minutes. Starting now. Again? I think that's uh Sarah's making dinner. I'm so oh, yeah. sorry, guys. So sorry. That's okay. Gotta share. Gotta share with the class. Um if they're shaking, don't try to restrain them. Let them let them shake. Uh, and certainly don't force anything into the mouth. Don't put anything into the mouth. And this old kind of thing of like putting the spoon into the mouth, the wooden spoon into the mouth, don't stick anything into the mouth. Just let them shake, let them seize. Uh, typically seizures last about, you know, maybe a minute, uh, 30 seconds, a minute. It'll seem much longer. Um, but uh, generally, these are going to uh, end over about uh, 30 to 60 seconds. And at the end of that seizure, when they stop shaking, then roll them up on their side with their head down because they're going to have all this drool in their mouth and they're not breathing where you just got to let them drain everything out of their mouth. Roll them up on their side, put their head down and let things drain uh, out of their mouth. They'll typically start to wake up after a few minutes, but when they start to wake up, they're going to be confused. Expect that. So talk to them. Be you know, calm, 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 and reassuring. Tell them you know they're fine. Blah blah blah. And that confusion, if it's a typical seizure, will pass over a course of five minutes or so, and then they'll they'll kind of regain the, their senses uh, there. Questions on seizures? All right, some uh, advice on just some of the common infections and we're gonna get into some of the recommendations on medications you might wanna carry on board. So uh, uh, quick uh, uh, reinforcement of common colds and flus and now COVID are all viral and antibiotics uh, don't help. In fact, they hurt. So most cases of like upper respiratory infections don't need antibiotics, okay? What does need antibiotics are urinary tract infections, bladder infections, kidney infections, again, very common. Uh, and so this is something where you really, I think it's, it's, it's fairly prudent to carry antibiotics on board to deal with urinary tract infections. The trick with them is that, um, which antibiotics to carry really depend on the drug resistance of where you are. And that even in the US that can, that can uh, vary greatly. But uh, if you were gonna pick one antibiotic to carry for this, ciprofloxacin, common, uh, is a good thing uh, uh, to carry. Uh, it's got multiple indications for using it. Can't use it in kids, you can't use it in pregnancy. And of course you gotta check for allergies and stuff like that. But this is uh, a medication and indication that is, I think it's very reasonable and prudent to carry antibiotics for that. Diarrheal infections, certainly we've all dealt with Teresta, you know, common mild uh, to moderate diarrhea it can be associated with some cramping, you know, generally associated with an adjustment in your gut to the local bacteria. Self-limited, uh, um, and really best just to let it uh, kind of run its course. There's a gazillion home recipes uh, from using Pepto-Bismol to all sorts of different things to you know, try to manage these symptoms. 
but in general, common, doesn't need treatment, best to let it run its course. And that's different from bloody diarrhea and diarrhea associated with fever, which is generally an indication of a more serious bacterial infection. Now, mind you, many of these don't need antibiotics, but, but some of these do. And so this is a time where you at least, it, it would be prudent to have antibiotics on board so that at least you have the option. So again, you're offshore or someplace remote, uh, you can consult with your physician or medical, you know, and it says, yep, this sounds like something that would benefit from antibiotics. What do you have on board? Good to have, uh, have some Cipro uh, on board uh, for that. Um, cellulitis, we have two forms here, common cellulitis, skin infection, right? Most of us have had uh, small bouts of this red, painful, uh, rash, you know, that's, uh, not associated with swimming here. This is staph and strep. It might be even, um, what they call it staph resistant, um, uh, cellulitis, very common, good to have something on board to treat this. Consider having clindamycin on board. Clindamycin is a good uh, antibiotic that's got a lot of uh, uses for it. Again, you got to be mindful of local resistance and individual allergies, right? So again, this is best to be done in consultation with a physician. But again, if you call and it's like, hey, I got someone on board, they got this horrible rash, it's getting worse. Uh, and yeah, maybe it's associated with fever. And it's like, yep, that looks like cellulitis. We need to get them on antibiotics. Great to have some uh, clindamycin uh, on board. Uh, and uh, that's not to be confused with a blistering rash that might look something like this that is associated with swimming, especially in uh, saltwater conditions. This is Vibrio. I don't know if anyone's had personal experience with this. Uh, it's horrible. This is a life-threatening, very serious infection. So this is like the prior one where it's like, oh, if it's not too bad, yeah, put them on some clindamycin, have them rest, keep it elevated. They're probably gonna be fine. This is a, oh crap, this person's in trouble. This person has a very serious infection. They need to get to a hospital for IV antibiotics and possibly surgical management uh, for this thing. So this, this is this warning of if you ever see this sort of, it's a very distinctive rash. You see something like this, this is a, oh no, this is a bad, bad, bad thing. Uh, and, and it's out there. I'm, I'm actually curious to see if anyone's uh, encountered uh, a, a Vibrio infection. Now, so it's out there, be aware of it. It's terrible. You know, we're here in the Chesapeake. One of the interesting things is we see it rarely in a, in a, in a human infection, but when they go out and sample like around the Chesapeake Bay, it's rampant. It's like all over the place. It's in the water. It's associated with shellfish. It, it's out there. I'm actually surprised we don't see uh, more of it. Uh, and then that takes us to allergic reactions. Let me let me pause on uh, and see if we got questions dealing with uh, infections.
Okay, good. So allergic reactions, we're going to uh, uh, deal with life-threatening and uh, more common, not life-threatening. The life-threatening, uh, you're going to know right away and they're going to be uh, really exciting because they're going to get short of breath. They're either going to get short of breath either because they're wheezing. You may or may not hear the wheezing, but they're going to be short of breath um, or they're going to be complaining about their throat getting tight, full, uh, and that might be followed by some, uh, some swelling of the tongue that you can see, the lips, the face. And this is, this is life-threatening. This needs immediate treatment uh, and typically, you know, can't wait. And this is where you might want to consider carrying an, uh, an epinephrine auto-injector, an EpiPen. So these do require a, a, a prescription, uh, but they can be uh, life-saving, you know, and it's one of those things, there's no substitute. You either have it or you don't have it. Going along with that, it's helpful is diphenhydramine, Benadryl, but uh, it takes longer. And in that life-threatening situation, um, it may not, uh, uh, because the epinephrine works through different pathways and stuff, uh, may not be enough. Uh, and then finally, a consideration of actually carrying prednisone, which is a steroid. Again, uh, you want to be careful not to use prednisone or any other steroid really without, you know, the, the advice of a doctor. Steroids have lots of side effects, a lot of bad side effects, a lot of very serious side effects. Uh, and so uh, I know some folks are kind of cavalier about using it. And it's like, that, that's not a good idea. Have a healthy respect for it. But again, can uh, uh, be life-saving. And, you know, these are, these are medicines that, again, you either have them on board or you don't. So these are things that you might consider. For the common uh, hives, the itchy, the itchy hives to the skin, migrating rash, it gets itchy, blotchy, and it migrates. It appears and it goes away and then it appears someplace else. It's not a constant rash. It's hives, urticaria there. You know, over-the-counter Benadryl works great. Questions uh, there for allergic reactions? Marine envenomations, uh, you know, I would, I would guess that uh, many, many of you are probably uh, more versed in this uh, than I, uh, but um, I'll tell you what I know and uh, what, what I've learned. So the common ones, and we were talking about the common jellyfish, we're not talking about the exotics, we're not talking about the box jellyfish and all these other like uh, exotics, we're talking about the common jellyfish that are fairly ubiquitous there. And similarly, the common corals uh, there. Uh, two things, I'm, I'm gonna be interested in other advice. One is to do uh, a vinegar rinse immediately as soon as you can. And that actually helps prevent additional stinging. So you do a vinegar rinse and then you remove the pieces of jellyfish or whatever like that. And then all the little pieces that you can't see, you scrub off gently with sand or sponge, gently get rid of those. But if you do that, uh, after, if you don't do the vinegar first, the removing process, they're gonna get stung more. And actually the, the acidification of these little 
uh, nematocytes will stabilize them so that they don't, they don't fire. You can prevent additional stinging. So vinegar, remove, removal. Uh, and then if they're having a lot of pain, uh, then actually uh, hot water, heat. Uh, how hot? Hot enough that somebody else can put their hand in there and not complain, right? That you're, you have someone else test the, test the heat uh, of the water. And that's the same uh, um, piece with the, uh, the lionfish and the stonefish with these deeper punctures, with these deeper envenomations. Very painful. I've actually never seen one of these things. So I'm only going on what I've you know, read and, and been taught. Deep punctures there, um, but you have this, uh, you have this envenomation there uh, and you can uh, uh, stabilize that protein with heat or denature the protein, I should say, uh, with heat. So that's the, the common. So that said, uh, advice, experiences, I'm sure folks have had lots of experience with these. <coughs> hey, Chris, uh, just a quick question from Doug. He said, are there other OTCs like Zyrtec? Are they as good as Benadryl, Zyrtec? You know, uh, so Zyrtec, so there's, um, the short answer is my preference is, uh, uh, is the diphenhydramine. Uh, there's uh, what they're called H1 blockers and H2 blockers. And some people even say, take both. And like, there's a, 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 an additive effect on that. Um, I can't say, uh, uh, that I've looked at the literature in the last few years on that. So I, I actually can't give uh, an informed um, answer to that other than Banadryl, diphenhydramine has always just been my kind of common go-to. It's cheap, it's effective. Yes, it's a little sedating, um, but it works. Perfect. All right, we'll keep, we'll keep moving here. I know we got a couple more to go and we try to try to we can wrap it up in about 10 more minutes. Kind of I think we'll be there because it, it's yeah. really just down to um, what to carry on board. So here's my uh, recommendations. It's actually a fairly short list. You know, I think most of us do have our kind of basic first aid. You need, you know, the simple uh, bandage. You need some uh, antibiotic ointment. Now, mind you, the antibiotic ointment isn't helpful because it's got an antibiotic it's because it keeps a nice moist seal over the wound. And so that's all it's doing. So it's just an, it's just an ointment, but the easiest way to do that is get the antibiotic ointment, but there's no magic with the antibiotics. You need some gauze pads, you need some gauze wraps uh, and stuff, but these do not need to be sterile and you don't need to put them in and trying to keep things, especially in a human environment, you know, sterile can be very difficult. They don't need to be sterile. So just, they just need to be clean. Elastic bandages, obviously tape, you can consider a pre-made uh, uh, tourniquet, uh, but honestly, you're going to have stuff uh, readily available to make a tourniquet if it's called for. One thing, um, and I didn't have a picture of this, I'll show you, that you might want to consider is splint material. So big splints, like splinting of uh, uh, the bigger bones, it's easy with, uh, you know, either buddy taping or using bigger pieces, uh, you know, bigger objects. But for forearms and stuff, uh, sometimes you need something that's a little bit more compliant. Um, and so there's a lot of different splint materials uh, out there. Uh, this is one that's called a SAM splint. 
And they roll up, it's basically thin aluminum with some pads on it, but you can take this, you, they're easy to cut with a scissor and you can form a splint very easily with something like this. So you might consider, and this stuff's available at CVS, very common, um, uh, something for smaller, smaller uh, uh, splints. So consider some, uh, some basic splint material like a SAM splint. And then uh, here's the list of medications. Uh, and Mark, we were talking about, we'll make this uh, available on a, on a PDF so people can have this to reference. But uh, here's my recommendations uh, for pain medicine. Ibuprofen, phenomenal, works well, as long as you're not allergic to these things or don't have contraindications. You know, obviously, I got to double check with your doctor. You, know, you can't take ibuprofen if you've got kidney disease or if you've got uh, problems with like peptic uh, ulcer disease or something like that. But if you don't have those contraindications, ibuprofen actually works amazingly well. Uh, and my own personal experience with a, a broken arm was that uh, uh, I had a nasty broken arm. They gave me Percocet uh, and the ibuprofen worked better for me. Like the, the ibuprofen got rid of the pain and the Percocet did not get rid of the pain. It just made me feel goofy. And I really learned from that experience, like just how effective ibuprofen is. So don't, don't, don't poo poo uh, ibuprofen and we keep a, we keep a big bottle on board. Uh, so ibuprofen, Tylenol, acetaminophen, having that especially for treatment of uh, fevers. Again, aspirin for your heart attacks uh, offshore. Have aspirin on board, really very uh, important. And then again, keep all your leftover pain medicine. Don't throw it out, even if it's expired, because uh, it's probably fine. Uh, and uh, you, may, uh, you may need that. For gastrointestinal, Imodium over-the-counter works very well, very effective, actually better than the, the prescription uh, antidiarrheal, so have that on board. Consider having um, some uh, Zofran on board that requires a prescription, but uh, works um, uh, very well for nausea and vomiting, except for motion sickness. So that's, it's not gonna help uh, in that setting. Motion sickness, most of us uh, have used or you know, have on board scopolamine patches. So uh, very effective in prevention of motion sickness. Not very good after a person's already sensitized and sick. It's, it's a preventative medicine for that. Uh, when someone's sick, it is hard to uh, get them unsick until they kind of go through it. The only thing that's really proven effective is Valium, uh, if you have that. But again, that's that requires a prescription. Anadole, there's some good indications that cannabis uh, may be very effective for severe motion sickness. It's anadole, it's not proven, uh, but there's, uh, there's some good uh, case reports of uh, its effectiveness. For antibiotics, clindamycin, ciprofloxacin, clindamycin, you can use for skin infections, dental infections, but again, this requires a prescription. Cipro, good for urinary tract infections and marine infections, and then having uh, the medicines to deal with uh, the allergic reaction. Consider getting an auto-injector, epinephrine auto-injector. They're expensive, 
personally. I think it's a, it's a wise investment. Um, uh, and then the diphenhydramine and, and perhaps keeping some prednisone uh, on board. Uh, many of you are aware of this, that uh, uh, overseas, a lot of the medicines that require prescriptions in the US are over the counter overseas. And even more common is that uh, pharmacists uh, uh, overseas can typically prescribe without a doctor a lot of these medicines that require a prescription. You can go into a pharmacy, tell them you know your ailment, your issue, um, and obtain uh, the the medications there. Uh, I've never asked for uh, provisioning, uh, but. Uh, I'm, they certainly plan to like reprovision uh, when I need to from a pharmacy. Uh, and I think I'm gonna leave it at that. I had some slides in here about um, uh, medevacing and, and, and insurance, but um, we've covered the medical. Yeah, well, hey, Chris, I, I know you spent a lot of time putting this together and I really appreciate it. I will send out an email to everybody with a link uh, later so that you will be able to download uh, this presentation in PDF form. A question came through from Joshua. I said, good general antibiotics, that's okay for kids since Cipro is not? So, uh, yeah, so uh, for, for kids and, um, uh, so, well, so a couple uh, things there. Um, for uh, urinary tract infections, kids don't get very often. So that's, that's really kind of a, usually just an adult thing. Um, for the marine uh, alternative uh, for Vibrio and, and stuff, you know, I'd probably carry even just some basic old Calflex. Uh, uh, wide, uh, wide use there. Well tolerated. Okay. Anybody else have any other questions or comments from anybody? What I will also this do. This has been great. Thanks, Chris. Nice really work. appreciate yeah. it. Nice work. Well, again, you know, appreciate uh, everyone who's uh, given me advice and support and help over the years. We really appreciate it. So I'm, I'm happy I could reciprocate. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It was great. A lot of good information here. Uh, I will get the email sent out with a PDF uh, later tonight. So everybody will have, have at least a copy of the uh, presentation. And we'll have this up on the web later next week. So thanks again for everybody. Appreciate it.